0: Well, how are you all doing this morning? Yeah? Did you bounce out of bed full of joy and excitement about what today's going to bring? Are you living life to the full this morning? Did you marvel on your way here at the beauty of what God has created just as you look out of the windows on your way here today? Did you? Well, if that's you this morning, you can go home right now because I probably haven't got anything that's going to do you any good this morning. (laughs) Anyone left? (laughs) But for the rest of you, I really hope that tomorrow morning can be quite different. 2,465 years ago this year, a motley crew of poor Jewish exiles pulled off an incredible feat. In just 52 days, despite intense enemy opposition, they worked together to rebuild the walls around their beloved city of Jerusalem. You can read the story, and I know for those that have been around over the last few months, we've been reading it a lot in the the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Having completed the task, the exiles certainly deserved the celebration that they enjoyed as they all gathered together around the newly constructed walls to listen to their governor and to their priest. Let's pick up the story again in Nehemiah chapter 8. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For the people had wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength." So the Levites calmed the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Don't be grieved, for all the people went on their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today as we encounter your word together. Speak to us through it, Lord. Change us. Work in our hearts, Lord, as we encounter you in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. For those who are not familiar with how the Jewish people got to be into this situation, the backstory story here is that despite constant appeals by their prophets to remain faithful to him, the Jewish nation had largely abandoned their unique relationship with God as his special people, a people chosen by God to be a blessing to the whole world. But rather than being a light to the nations around them, They had ended up chasing after those nations' idols, adopting their cultures and really abandoning God. This was despite prophets' warnings and the incredible miraculous signs and wonders that God had demonstrated to them, including them, saving them out of slavery and bringing them into a land that was just for them. In seeming ever greater measure, Apart from a few notable exceptions, they moved further and further from God in each generation. And so God was left with no option but to bring judgment upon them and exile them from the land. But even then, God did not give up on them. He continued to stir the hearts of a remnant who had faithfully held onto God's promises and eventually the exiles were able to return to their beloved city, Jerusalem. It was these exiles that had come together to rebuild the walls of the city against tremendous enemy opposition that were now standing, weeping, as their leaders read the words of God's promises, his covenant with them. They had only to look at the newly completed walls around them to see the fulfillment of that promise. I've got a somewhat challenging task this morning. Over the past few weeks, we've been discussing various aspects of the joy of the Lord. But this morning, we're going to change direction a little bit because we need to tackle those things that set out to kill joy. The things that undermine and rob us of the joy of the Lord. But before we look at what might kill joy, it's important to make sure we're clear on what biblical joy actually is. What is this joy that Nehemiah was telling the returned exiles about? There are more than 80 passages in the Old Testament, and most of the books in the New Testament touch on the topic of joy in some way, so it's actually quite hard to come up with a single definition. Someone actually once said, when we have the joy of the Lord, we'll know it, and so will others. But I did manage to find a helpful definition that brings together many of the different concepts uh, that the Bible uses when it describes joy. Biblical joy is a state of mind and an orientation of the heart. It is a settled state of contentment, confidence, and hope in God. Now, I know this is from a wiki source, but I think it does capture the essence of the joy of the Lord pretty effectively. And I'd like to just unpack it a little bit. Joy's roots are found... When we recognize God's covenantal purpose for us to be his people who are called by his name. And in the outworking of that purpose, we are transformed into his image. It begins when God calls, when we hear, understand, and believe the gospel. Hearing and believing the gospel reorients our hearts, leading to repentance, forgiveness and reconciliation to God. As we turn to God, our hearts are settled as his peace envelops us. There's nothing more satisfying to our spirits than fixing our gaze on our savior, reflecting on the magnitude and the significance of the work of salvation in our lives. Biblical joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not an end in itself. It flows into and grows within us when our lives and energies are focused on God, not on seeking joy. The irony is, if we are chasing joy, we're actually demonstrating that we don't yet have it. Joy is also the sign of that life has found its purpose and its reason for being. And this is a revelation of the Holy Spirit. No one can come to him and find the purpose of life unless he calls them and reveals it to them. And joy is a command of God that can only be produced by God in us as we are transformed into his likeness. Paul commanded the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Speaking of Paul's command, Augustine famously said, Father, command what you will and grant what you command. God commands in us what only he can deliver in us so joy is inseparable from our covenantal relationship with god and it springs from our knowledge and understanding of the purpose of life and the hope that we have of living in him into eternity and that's why there was such richness in our reaction to those songs this morning that we were singing that talked of all that he has done for us. So bearing all of that in mind, what can kill this joy? First of all, let me say, if you are a follower of Jesus, nothing can kill or destroy the joy of a heart transformed by the gospel. But just like the exiles building the wall, we do have an enemy that wants to convince us that we don't deserve or qualify for God's joy. And he has schemes that he uses to undermine that joy in our lives. The story of God's dealing with his chosen people points to a bigger story of his dealing with the whole of mankind, Despite their unfaithfulness, God never gave up on his chosen people, but always had a plan of redemption and restoration. In Jesus, God has revealed his ultimate redemptive plan for the whole of mankind in the new covenant. He chose you, and he did everything that was necessary for your salvation. There's a beautiful summary of the exile story described by Jeremiah, who was a prophet who lived around the time immediately before the exile. It demonstrates how the story points prophetically to God's ultimate redemptive plan accomplished in Jesus. The prophecy concludes with a promise of God's everlasting covenant as he cleanses us from the guilt of sin and rejoices in doing us good. Take a look at Jeremiah 32, and I've just selected some of the key conclusions from this prophecy. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will cleanse them from the guilt of their sin against me. As a believer, nothing can rob you of the underlying basis for your joy. You are completely secure in Christ because he did everything that was necessary to make it so. Ephesians 1 tells us that by grace we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. We are forgiven and redeemed through his blood. We've obtained an inheritance in him. We're predestined to be adopted as sons and daughters of God through Jesus. And this has been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of that inheritance. So before we go on, please let that sink in. Let those marvelous truths wrap you in peace like a child's comfort blanket. So, with that securely in place, we have to recognize that while Jesus has done everything necessary for us to rejoice in the grace which he so freely lavishes on us, we do face an enemy who will do what he can to undermine that joy. If we let him, he will build barriers between us and God and between each other that can cause that joy to flicker and diminish in our lives. In researching this message, and even thinking about my own life, I was quickly overwhelmed by the number of things that can undermine our joy. Do a quick internet search, which I did, and you will find list after list after list of joy killers, so do Christian joy killers, and you will just be overwhelmed by how many there are, and I was overwhelmed by how many I related to, but all these joy killers seem to have common roots, roots that point back to an attack on the underlying basis of God's covenant with us. When challenged by a lawyer to declare what is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus replied that there are two greatest commandments that together form the underlying basis for God's covenant with mankind. And it is by undermining these that the enemy undermines our joy. Take a look at a very familiar passage in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law, that's the covenant of God, and the prophets. Everything flows from our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. So let's take a look at how the enemy seeks to undermine our joy by interfering with those relationships. Firstly, with God. The source of our joy is found in our relationship with God. So anytime the enemy tricks us into looking elsewhere for joy, whether those places are good or bad, whatever we find will only ever be a shadow of what God has for us. It is folly to look for joy in the wrong places. No matter how hard we try, the things of man can never fill the space designed by God to only be filled by him. Charles Spurgeon put it like this, when a soul is once quickened by the eternal spirit, It can no more fill itself with worldly mirth or even the common enjoyments of life than can a man snuff up wind and feed on it. He has given us appetites which carnal things cannot content and has provided suitable satisfaction for those appetites. He has stored up at his right hand pleasures forevermore. Anything we go to as our source of joy outside of God will diminish our joy in him. The only place we can go for true joy is God. In fact, anything else can quickly become an idol, demanding ever more of our time and affection as it seeks to replace God's role in our lives. Let me mention a couple of examples that I think might help us here today. Firstly, And this was a big one for me my career I thought my goal was laudable to provide well for my family but I quickly found myself subtly being sucked into idolatry looking to my position and my wealth rather than to God to find meaning and value and by the way that's not just for people operating in the marketplace. That can be the same for people in ministry too. It's so easy to find our value in our ministry position rather than in the one to whom we are ministering. Secondly, for some of you here, it might even be your spouse or your children You were all out for God, but you've settled for the notion that a perfect family life is the source of true joy. Jesus had some very challenging words about this. He said that anyone that loves a son or daughter more than him is not worthy of him. Some commentators have suggested that that might be hyperbole, but I suspect it is more likely that Jesus is calling us higher, to him above all others. Love of family is a law of God, but even this love can be self-serving and used as an excuse not to serve God. In addition, God knows that if we don't put him first, it means we've effectively unplugged ourselves from the source of the joyful sustenance in God that actually enables us to be truly successful as spouses and parents. Now, I'm not saying being a good parent is bad. I would never say such a thing, because of course it's not. But when we turn to our family to provide what our relationship with God was designed to provide, we rob ourselves of the strength we need from our joy in the Lord. And this is the very strength we need to be truly effective to serve our family properly. So we miss out, our family misses out, and ultimately the family of God misses out. When we look to anything other than God for our identity, we end up being robbed of joy. Is your identity rooted in what God says about you in his word? Or have you found yourself trusting more in the shifting sands of what our culture says about you? For some here, I suspect you may be looking to joy in relationships on social media. Oh, how much time and energy do we waste looking for joy and meaning on our smartphones? If your identity is wrapped up in FOMO and how you measure up against the artificial lives of social media influencers, you will just end up settling for shallow and insincere relationships. Let's dig a little bit deeper into the issue of looking to other things for our identity outside of Christ. Popular culture places an extremely high value on what might be called our internal identity. This internal identity narrative states that our internal desires are our identity. And therefore, in order to express fullness of life, we must embrace, express, and act upon those desires. So if anything constrains or limits our ability to satisfy our internal desires, it must, by definition, be wrong. So if I might pick up on a pertinent example, the concept of internal identity is one of the most prominent cultural narratives shaping current secular views on sexuality. Writing on this topic, author and one of the leaders in one of our churches in the UK, Andrew Bunt, explained the damage that this does when we act on unconstrained sexual expression. First, it can do damage to the individual themselves. Building identity on the internal puts pressure on people to embrace and express their desires, whatever the cost and it causes people to believe that they can never truly be satisfied until they do so. This is part of the reason why so many single people feel unsatisfied. Since most of us experience romantic and sexual attractions, if we believe this narrative, we can't also believe that we can experience fullness of life if we don't get an opportunity to express these desires. So we find ourselves justifying unconstrained sexual expression rather than living within the limits set by God for our own good. Because we've bought into this internal identity narrative. If I desire it, I must have it if I'm going to be fulfilled. Oh, how the enemy loves to play on this one but how unbelievably damaging it is to the lives of those devastated by sexual promiscuity and how it robs us of the true joy that God intends for us. As I said at the beginning of this part of the message, anything we look to as the source of our fulfillment and joy outside of God will ultimately diminish our joy in him. He is the only source of true joy. Please don't let the enemy convince you of anything else. Secondly, the second area where the enemy seeks to undermine and destroy our joy is through the ways we relate to one another. Our relationship with each other directly affects how we relate to God and so affects our joy. Indeed, looking at how our culture identifies identity, particularly with respect to sexual expression, Bunt goes on to explain that the internal identity narrative doesn't only damage the individual. The cultural narrative of internal identity also does damage to those around the individual who embraces it. If our identity, excuse me, and so the route to fulfillment is built on our internal desires, then our desires are given permission to trump anything else that gets in their way, including existing relationship commitments. One person's step into freedom becomes another person's doorway to pain. In her book, you who, why you matter, and how to deal with it, Rachel Jankovitz broadens Bunt's point to the impact of the internal identity narrative on the way it challenges how we handle disagreements with people. She said, regular, honest people buy unbelievingly foolish philosophy. We buy into it through movies and shows and emotional stories. And this is the narrative. Isn't it really hateful to disagree with someone, to suggest that they are on the wrong path. We're told over and over that we should simply follow our own hearts and let others do the same. We see other professing Christians wearing them, adopting this belief, and assume that that makes it okay. But if these beliefs are founded on the assumption that there is no God, what business should we have with them? Not working through differences with people doesn't work, especially when they are based on matters of truth and integrity. We can't just abandon people to the wrong path, especially our brothers and sisters in the church. We need to work it out with them. In Galatians 6, Paul encourages the church to seek to restore someone caught in sin gently and to carry each other's burdens but to test our own actions so that we don't get drawn in by the same thing. We see the damage that the world's approach creates, yet we can so easily be tempted to adopt its model when we don't encourage one another to walk in the ways of God, and we don't help each other to address the sin that it tries to entangle us. In a somewhat similar vein, Jesus presents us with a huge challenge in the Sermon on the Mount when he speaks about working stuff out with our brothers and sisters when they have something against us. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, he says, If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come. And offer your gift. In these couple of sentences, Jesus emphasized just how important working out our differences with one another is. He explained that the problem of human estrangement is so seriously that settling a grievance with someone must take preference and precedence even over our worship to God even such a solemn occasion as worship in the inner courts of the temple should be interrupted in order to bring reconciliation among believers. Being in a right relationship with our brothers and sisters matters. Holding grudges against one another dims the joy in our relationship with God. How can we expect to enjoy a closeness with God if we allow division, misunderstanding, and distrust of others to remain in our hearts? We need to work it out with them. A little earlier, I mentioned the Apostle Paul's command to the Philippian church to rejoice in the Lord. The immediate context into which Paul brought this command was the entreating of Judea and Syntyche, who were t- two key co-workers of his in Philippi, to work out their differences. This was really important to Paul. He saw how it affected the church's witness to the gospel. He even went as far as to encourage the whole church to help them work out their differences and, conf- and resolve their conflict so that they together might be able to rejoice in Christ, and so that their graciousness towards one another might be known to everybody. Are you holding grudges, resentment, or unforgiveness against someone in your heart today? Confess it to God. Allow him to forgive you and forgive them. Is there someone that has something against you today that you need to go to, to reconcile before you come to God? Please don't put it off. Go see them today. Work it out. I'll ask the Holy Spirit to help you bring the right words and the right actions. So let's pull all of this together now. If we find ourselves in a place of diminished joy, If we've allowed barriers to grow between us and God or between each other, what are we to do? I can't just leave us all here, can I? God has provided us with an amazing antidote, a truly exceptional and wonderful gift, something simple but profound, the gift of repentance. Let's return to our exiles. Safe inside the newly finished walls, the exiles wept as they listened intently to Ezra and Nehemiah read and explain the precious words of God's covenant law. Words they saw literally fulfilled in the walls around them. They were cut to the heart as God's word reminded them of his holiness and of his covenant promises. Like a sword, it tore into their hearts, but at the same time, ministered a healing balm. They wept with the glorious, joyful relief that can only be experienced by the truly repentant. The day was holy, and out of their repentant grief emerged real healing, feasting and rejoicing in the strength of their God. Now, forgive me for returning to him again, but I love how Spurgeon tackles this passage when discussing the reaction of the exiles. He said, grief for sin is the porch of the house beautiful where the guests are full of the joy of the Lord. He went on to liken repentance to the flowers in a garden shining in the sun following a rain shower. He described the scene like this The sun transforms the raindrops into gems. The flowers look up with fresher smiles and faces glittering from their refreshing bath. So when the soul has been saturated in the rain of, rep- of penitence, the clear shining of forgiving love makes the flowers of gladness blossom all around. True repentance brings clarity, a purity of heart from which the warm, refreshing rains of joy come. Truly blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Or as Peter exclaimed to his fellow Israelites in Acts chapter 3, repent, turn to the Lord that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. The refreshing of true everlasting joy is found when we turn away from the sin that so easily entangles us and turn to Jesus. For those that are followers of Jesus here today, I want to remind us, that this was not a one time deal when we first turned to Christ. John said, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And he went on to say, Jesus is our advocate with the Father, He's the atoning sacrifice. our sins. In Christ, we are made righteous. We may sin. In fact, in this world, we will have a battle with sin, but we have an advocate in heaven who has done everything necessary for us to be and to remain acceptable to God. Our part is to recognize where and when we have fallen short to confess our sins and return to him. As we do this, God looks at us and sees the work that Christ did on our behalf and doesn't count those sins against us. As he looks at us, he sees us wrapped in a blanket of his righteousness. The prophet Isaiah put it like this. He has clothed us with the garments of salvation and wrapped us in a robe of of righteousness. What an amazing reason to be joyful. How happy are those for whom God does not count their sins against them. The biggest killjoy we face that comes from putting barriers between us and God or between each other is because of an unrepentant heart. Why am I making such a big deal out of this point? because unfortunately we live in a world which defines us by our internal identity and in which sin is not about our relationship with God or the way we treat each other, but is about being inauthentic to ourselves. Our world has made sin about not being true to ourselves and not fulfilling our desires. So if we're not careful, our view of sin can be colored by that culture, and that means we end up adopting the ways of the culture, much like the Israelites did, condoning sin, ignoring it, justifying it, or even denying that the things we do that undermine our relationship with God and each other are sin at all. And the problem with this is that when we deny sin, we effectively exclude ourselves from the wonderful benefits of God's gift of repentance. The best way to deal with sin, in fact, the only way to deal with sin, is not just to acknowledge it, it's to own it. It's to take it on the chin. It's to take it full force in your face and own it because then you can turn completely honestly to God acknowledge it before him and he promises he will restore you repentance is that act of returning to God it creates conviction and courage to do what is necessary to come back to God it's not remorse or pity and it never condemns it brings life light joy and freedom, never condemnation. Commentator Jeremy Adelman said, We do not need to forfeit our joy in Christ when we're confronted with our sin, Mm. withdrawing from God and pouting over our failures. Joy in Christ arms us to face our sins with humility, seriousness, and hope. If we want to win the battle, we fight sin and temptation with joy. I want to close now with a prayer. And I'd like to pray that 14th century prayer that Ian actually posted on Facebook last week from Thomas A. Kempis. So if we can just pray. O light eternal, surpassing all created brightness, flash forth the lightning from above and enlighten the inmost recesses of my heart cleanse, cheer, enlighten, and enliven my spirit with all its powers, that it may cling to you in ecstasies of joy. Oh, when will that happy and wished-for hour come? When will you fill me with your presence and become all in all to me? As long as this is not given to me, My joy will not be complete. But hallelujah, as we turn to you, Lord, we know that you accept us, you welcome us, and you rejoice over us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.